Hello and welcome to the TFO Football Podcast. I am Joe Devine and today I am joined by Seb Stafford-Bloor. Morning, Joe. Morning. And uh, Alex Stewart. Good afternoon, Joe. Good afternoon. Okay, well that's a confusing start, isn't it? <laughs> Actually, the crossover occurred just between those two moments. It yeah. did. So we were both yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. Um, Possibly. Today we're going to talk about uh, Sheffield United, which is exciting for us. Newly promoted, of course, they'll be featuring in the Premier League next season. The first time a Sheffield team has been in the Premier League for how many years? Oh, a decade. Since, since the early days, right? Wasn't it? No, no, no. Well, obviously, um, Sheffield United uh, were lost in, they were lost relegated um, because of the Carlos Tevez affair oh, at yes. West Ham. So that was uh, 12 years ago. No. Okay, yeah. for 12 years. Okay. Uh, well, it's very exciting. I, I just want to um, say at the beginning... Uh, of course, there are some some of our audience who listen to this every week. Hello. Uh, there are some people who, uh, well, new listeners who join us every week or just specifically to listen to the podcast about their club. So I'll be uh, speaking to you for a moment. Um, we're going to start this podcast uh, with a little five minutes to, I suppose, explain Sheffield United to people who haven't seen any of them this season, who aren't aware of the players, aren't aware of uh, the manager and the tactics. Um, and so I think we're going to kick things off with, with Seb giving us a broad overview. There will be more in-depth discussion shortly. So if you're a Sheffield United fan, you're about to hear information you already know. Stick with us for five minutes and um, we'll get into stuff that will be likely of more interest to you shortly. Um, but just to make sure everyone's on board with us, Seb, can you give us a, a brief overview of, uh, of, of the team for anyone who hasn't seen them this season? Okay, so, um, I mean, actually, I'd be surprised if there are too many who haven't. They've been... They've been- Broadcast on Sky. Joe's got his hand up. Um, they've been on on Sky an awful lot, and actually, they're they're, they're a joy to watch. They um, they're one of the most attractive teams in the um, in the division. It's interesting, actually, that um, obviously Norwich are going up alongside them. And at the time of recording, we're not sure who's going up through the playoffs. But the two automatically promoted sides, for my money, are the two most attractive teams in the division to watch. Um, broadly, uh, they're kind of. I was going to do tactics in more depth, but they're kind of a, a three four one two. Generally, um, they like to keep the ball. They like to play. Uh, sorry for the cliche, but on the front foot. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a, I think the most interesting part of them is actually um, the the parts which they're made out of. They um, they're kind of if you saw that group of, of players on paper, you wouldn't necessarily. They don't scream promotion candidate to you. It's a couple of familiar people. Oliver Norwood is a is a is a kind of a uh, central midfielder, but also a championship staple. Um, Alex and I were talking a little bit before we started recording, and uh, for my money, probably the best set piece delivery in the championship. Um, Billy Sharp is a local hero. He's actually, um, he's actually a Sheffield United fan growing up. He's been away from the club um, throughout his career. He had a very spell at Scunthorpe. He was at Southampton very briefly, and but he's now he's uh, I think he's thirty three now, um, but enjoying a, an Indian summer. Um, He's one of those forwards who he's great to watch because he's um, he has that sort of he has that instinct for goal. He doesn't have any one outstanding attribute. He's not he's not particularly quick. He's not the most physical. He's not the most skillful, and his technique isn't the most impressive. But he scores goals. He knows how to score. He knows how to score. And if you, I mean, if anyone has the opportunity to, to kind of to run back through sort of um, the highlights of his performances the last few years. What you invariably notice is he scores from all the same areas and he does so having found space in all of those same areas. So it's very interesting and a, a kind of... Um, a, a, he sounds like a Raumdeuter. Or am uh, I, am no, I over, what, I'm it. not sure I draw the parallel to, to Thomas Muller. No, not yet. But it, it's, it's one of those interesting things. I, I think um, I, I may offend people with this. The player he reminds me of a little bit is Glenn Murray. Back when Glenn Murray was, you know, 
you know, not now when Glenn Murray is very much at the kind of the shuffling point of his career, but he doesn't look like someone that should be a successful footballer, but he has, he is, and he has been for a really long time. I must say, those are my favourite footballers, the ones that you can't work out how yeah. or why they're there, but well, they still score. He's a good player and, and actually a, a good human being. I mean, um, if people want to look it up, there was a very unfortunate situation. Him, him and, his, uh, and his wife lost a, a child to a... Um, I can't remember its specific name, but it's like an intestinal disease where uh, 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 a child's um, intestines grow outside of their body. It's a horrible thing. And uh, they do a lot of charity work um, and have done since. So it's a, it's a nice story to, to see him doing well and, and to finally to see him hopefully get the chance to, to score some goals in the Premier League. Um, elsewhere, there's a few names that people remember. Um, Chris Basham, um, people will, will uh, Alex will remember because he was at Southampton for a while, wasn't he? Chris Basham? Uh, no. Am I thinking of a different Chris Basham or a different Basham altogether? I, I don't know who you're thinking right, of. Right, we'll cut that out then. Okay, okay I've, well, I've ruined my credibility. David McGoldrick, I know, did play for Southampton and people will know him. He's recently got a call up for the Republic of Ireland. Billy Sharp played for Southampton. We've done that. We've Martin done that. Martin Craney played for this Southampton. This is not a Southampton podcast. Okay. Back in your box. Um, McGoldrick is actually their player of the season. Um, interestingly, another thing that we were talking about before this podcast uh, began was that um, Sharp and McGoldrick nominally are a front two. McGoldrick has, in my mind, been reinvented by Chris Wilder to, to an extent. He's played, uh, he's scored a lot of goals from in the penalty box, but a lot of his build-up play is, is, has originated in, in quite deep positions, um, which, having watched him over the years, he's now, I think David McGoldrick is either 30 or 31 now, so again, um, you know, he's sort of coming towards the end, but I always thought of him as a, as a more of a line-leading player. Um, Certainly at Ipswich, he, he was signed on a free transfer from them. Um, but he's, he's, he's been excellent. Um, he's got sort of 14, 15 goals this season and uh, expect him to start again in the, in the Premier League. And a couple of others as well. I, John, Egan is, um, John Egan has been a very astute signing from Brentford. I, th- I think what, what's interesting is, is last season, um, uh, they, uh, they, sort of, they had a very strong start to the season. They had, they had six months um, when they were excellent and then they kind of fell away. Uh, at the end of it, they lost David Brooks to Bournemouth. Uh, he was signed for just over £10 million. And he's been brilliant. He's, uh, he's a very, very talented player um, who's had some great moments in the Premier League. It's interesting to see uh, a side recover from the loss of a player that's that, that's that influential. Not only to recover, but to actually improve as a result. That's Norwich and James Madison as well. It right? is a little bit James, James Madison at Norwich. Um, a little bit different because kind of the, the, the scale of the player is a little bit different. Um, but in terms of their model and the kind of the, their creative output, it's a yeah, it's a fair parallel. Yeah, so it really, I, I've really enjoyed watching them. Um, I don't, I, 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 funnily enough, I, you know, that point in the season where you've been waiting all summer for competitive league football to come back, and you, you, you watch the very first thing that's on TV. So I watched their, um, uh, I watched their game against Swansea City at Bramall Lane. Um, and it was it was weird because Swansea City have got a whole sort of nest of issues they're dealing with. They came down into the division after being relegated with a not an entirely new group of players, but a lot of kind of bargain players, people that have been sort of um, snagged from you know on free transfers to to, to fill gaps that have been left. And Swansea turned them over, and they played very well. And, and at that point, you, you looked at Sheffield United and you thought, hmm, you know, you, of the kind of the. Um, yeah, having, having seen Brooks go and, and the kind of the disappointment, you just thought this is a hangover which is going to bleed into 2018, 2019. But no, they, they've, been, they've been absolutely excellent. And let me ask you, Chris Wilder, who is the manager, 
who you informed me is also a Sheffield United fan. Yeah, Boyhood fan. How long has he been there now? Uh, so he's just coming up to to his third anniversary. He was uh, he joined the club in May 2016. Great. Okay. Um, Alex, I'm going to throw things over to you now. Will you be able to talk talk us through the way that Sheffield play? Because I think it's quite attractive, I hear from Seb. It's quite attractive. It's interesting. Um, it's quite unusual. Um, so to categorise, as, as Seb said, they, they play three at the back. Formationally, they're very, very regular. So it's a, a three four one two. Um, although, as Seb's correctly pointed out, McGoldrick, as a, a second striker, does drop really quite deep uh, and play alongside the attacking midfielder. Um, the most obvious and interesting aspect of what they do is the overlapping centre-backs, which everyone gets what usually earth, excited about. What so Brendan Rodgers is in that. Right. So <laughs> essentially, uh, to, to, to go back to, to explain what an overlapping centre-back is, it, first you want to look at really what it is Sheffield United are seeking to do. And by playing with a great degree of rotation and flexibility, they are looking to create overloads between the opposition lines of attack and to make sure that they have players running forwards into those spaces to draw the opposition forward so they can then move to the next stage and then try and deliver a ball into the box where, particularly in sharp, they've got a predatory striker who will feed off that kind of service. So when they build up play from the back, what they do is one of the defensive midfielders will usually drop in so that the, the shape of the team remains not dissimilar, sort of three at the back. Um, the wingbacks will usually one, say they're attacking down the right-hand side, the right wingback will actually come infield. Um, think of how, say, like Ajax keep one player wide and one player in the half space. And then the centre-back on the right-hand side will actually push out and effectively become positionally the right wingback. So you've then got a defensive midfielder in the centre-back line, you've got a centre-back in the right wing-back position, you've got the wing-back in a sort of central midfield position. Okay. What this does is two things. Firstly, it confuses the hell out of the opposition because yeah. they're, they're thinking, oh, positionally, who should I be going against here, man for man? Secondly, what it does is it allows Sheffield United to progress the ball through the creation of these overloads. They're not scared to play it back and start again, which is intelligent, but... They're always looking to have players pushing up into positions where you wouldn't necessarily expect them. And what that does is it allows them to draw the opposition in to create these opportunities to then push the ball up vertically. And they're particularly looking to attack with crosses. Um, now, those crosses may be particularly in the sort of the Norwood right half space channel. He, he delivers a fantastic set piece, but actually quite a few of his assists will come from what is almost effectively like a free kick because he's managed to find so much space in that right half space that he can deliver a, a cross in as if it's unopposed. Or they'll get quite close to the byline and, and that's often on the left-hand side. It might be Ender Stevens, the left wing back. It might even be one of the centre-backs pushing forwards and sort of chipping the ball in. So when they get to the kind of the final phase, they're, they're either looking to cross or John Fleck, who pushes up an awful lot from the kind of deeper central midfield role, will slide these lovely little through balls through. Um, Fleck's been a really good midfielder this season. Norwood has rightly attracted a lot of praise, but Flex added the kind of the dynamism and the creativity. So they will also look to profit from there. But it's basically 
keeping things very flexible, very fluid, having players popping up where you wouldn't expect them to lure the opposition into making mistakes and then to create these overloads and spring forwards. Are they, are they specialised centre-back players? I mean, are, are they? Are, is this a personnel thing where they've found that they're playing some wing-backs in, in the centre-back position? Or I'm thinking of, you know, uh, um, Kyle Walker at the World Cup for England, for example. Right. But no. To, to my not- knowledge, and, and I, you know, I, I, I think, for example, O'Connell was, was, you know, he was bought as a centre-back. These, these are players who are, um, who have been coached to facilitate this style I, I don't think this is not like a you know kind of classic Marcelo Bielsa of you know let's play Arturo Vidal as a wing back or let's play Gary Medell as a centre back because they're able to do these things mm-hmm. I think he's taken Chris Wilder and this is just simply a testament to his coaching ability he's taken players who who are not used to doing these things and has asked them to to kind of you know create this style of play and they've been able to Okay, that's very that's very interesting. And they are they are all, they're an odd team in that regard. You can, know, can we say as well? And this, forgive me for my ignorance, and this may well just be me, um, but I'm aware this season because we've looked at Leeds, we've looked at Norwich, we're talking about Sheffield United now. Obviously, we this, as Seb mentioned before, this is before the playoffs. We don't know the third team that's going to be promoted, but it certainly seems that the three teams who are around the top three spots for, for the latter half of the season are all seemingly very tactically adept is that a new thing for the championship is that just me not having watched it much before uh, no i uh, hmm. yes and no i mean i think wolves really set a precedent last right. season yeah um and again with with the coaching there and with wolves you know the the the, the acquisition of players um that were capable of playing an interesting style of football i think what What's so interesting about Norwich, Sheffield United and Leeds in this instance is that I was looking at Transfermarkt earlier and Norwich and Sheffield United between them have spent about £12 million to to recruit players. And minus in net, you said as well. Massively minus in net. And, you know, the the sale of David Brooks for United and, and the sale of Madison for Leicester have put them significantly into the black in that regard. Um, Leeds similarly have not spent a huge amount of money. I mean, they they've spent a lot of money hiring a coach, but in every other regard, not so much. So, I think what you can look at here is is a combination of of coaches who are at the forefront of thinking about how you can play in the championship, and you know, particularly with with uh, well, actually, with all three of them. You know, these are fast paced physically intense styles and everyone says oh the championship is it's a slog you know it's the hardest league to get out of because it's a minimum you know 46 game season well this is why i was asking because i know from you know friends who are norwich fans who always say whenever they get relegated from the premier league it's a different thing in the championship we have to play a different type of football there's a different expectation you can't game it in the same way um and also there's there's a kind of expectation that to play the sort of football that we're talking about you have to have top athletes both athletically and intellectually to understand it with your describing the way you're describing Sheffield United with the overlapping center backs it's the sort of thing that again forgive me for my ignorance I wouldn't necessarily expect from championship level players I might expect the top level of the Premier League players to grasp that sort of stuff yeah that's not ignorance that that's just that that is true 
So is it, what's it happening is then is, is, I mean, it's a small sample size as one of one season, but are it we is. seeing the, the championship be, becoming tacticalized? I, I think that's possibly one answer to it. I think the, uh, the, the slow creep into the English game of more intelligent forms of coaching um, and the fact that, you know, the, someone like Daniel Farker, who cut his teeth in, you know, second team football in Germany before coming over here, has brought with him a, a hinterland of really intelligent, progressive coaching and crucially been backed at Norwich by intelligent and progressive off-field management as well. I think what Leeds have done by bringing in Bielsa and and allowing the, the creation of an environment there where these rather extraordinary ideas in terms of the championship context can be allowed to to take root and grow. I think Sheffield United is interesting because, I mean, Seb will get onto the ownership there, but, you know, this this squad is... It's entirely, you know, English, Irish, Scottish, or Welsh, which is, uh, which is which amazing, is very right? unusual. That's that. I mean, I, and again, I don't, I don't know, but I mean, I would assume that is that that is very unusual. Yeah, I think so. You know, and Norwich's acquisitions, for example, were very intelligent in the summer. But what they were doing was they were raiding, you know, the reserve teams of Bundesliga sides, or you know, it was it was clever, but they were looking abroad for bargains. Sheffield United have basically brought in, you know, a couple of signings for money in in Egan and Norwood. Uh, everyone else is on loan or are free. Um, so it it's it's not possible necessarily to say that that this is that this is actually much beyond Chris Wilder being an extraordinarily talented coach yeah. who has managed to coax out of a group of players who probably haven't been exposed. Or, or have been developing towards this style. But, you know, it's not... I, I, I'm not going to pretend that I know how Sheffield United played last season, but, but my inference from the way people are talking about it is that, that there is a departure from what they were doing last season, or at least this is a more aggressive and advanced form of it. So, so yeah. defensively better. I mean, that's yeah. a, that's well, a, a I think the loan signing of Henderson's been crucial. I think Henderson's the kind of the, the starting point of the summer too, because I mean, I don't know how well thought of he is at Manchester United, but like he needs really, I mean, it'd be very, very difficult to replicate that level of goalkeeping, um, either from inside the loan market or the transfer market without paying a huge amount of money, which they're not going to do. So hopefully, I think the best possible scenario for, for, for Sheffield United is De Gea stays at Manchester United. Romero stays there to back him up. And Manchester United see no harm in exposing one of the most promising goalkeepers in the country to another season, to a full season of Premier League football. Um, yeah. I, I, th- I think that would be the best move He's for, an excellent goalkeeper. for all of them, really. But, you know, this, this is the sort of... So there, there clearly is astute transfer business going on there. Um, and, you know, persuading a goalkeeper like Henderson to come and stay and, and perform really well is important. You know, people like McGoldrick, there's a blend of the sort of the old stages and, and the young prospects and, you know, people who know the league and understand it, people who've got a point to prove. But then taking all of that, which is sort of what you'd expect a club to be looking for in terms of a blend who are seeking promotion. Um and then do something sort of wildly unusual with them, tactically speaking. It is, sounds like the narrative of uh, the Oakland A's Moneyball season. 
Um, I'm not saying it's like that at all, but I, <laughs> I like how they pick out characters in the film who've got those. Uh, yeah. One of them is the guy who's got something to prove. One of them is the old hand who knows the league. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I justice. love it when I can understand it through a story. The guy that can't throw anymore because his, right. his arm's yeah. fallen off. Yeah. 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 But I think, yeah, I, I think, I think to a degree, it it's never, pos- you know, we set her on the outside and on, retrospectively you can judge transfers by their success or failure but sometimes it can be difficult to see necessarily what a team has seen in a particular player or the definitely the process by which they've arrived at signing that player and i think sometimes you can you can look at say a a norwich where there clearly is some sort of clear strategy that they're following because there's a pattern of both astute acquisitions and those acquisitions being successful at at Sheffield United because of the mishmash it's it's harder to see that and so it's difficult to know whether they are also super astute in a transfer way they're just doing it very differently or whether it's a bit hit and miss but because the coach is so good it's worked out and I don't know what the answer to that is. Let me take us on the tangent for for a moment this is uh, partly related to Sheffield United in terms of the sort of football that they're playing do you think, as a result of uh, kids playing games like FIFA and Football Manager, Football Manager has obviously always had uh, a, a deep tactical element to it. FIFA's um, tactical aspects are have increased over the over the years, and there's much more discussion in with the commentators and the pundits afterwards about formation and that sort of thing. That kids who are growing up now are growing up into a more intelligent football world, the footballers, I mean, who are growing up now, which would explain maybe why we are seeing teams in the championship uh, who, or, do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, uh, but that's the kind of, that's a, that's a transparency issue. I mean, when I grew up, um, I sort of went up when I was a, a young boy. Rather in, than in, a the teenage, in the 1950s. Exactly. Was that like the idea of, there was no tactical discussion anywhere. I mean, there was no internet, which doesn't help, of course, but formation was only really relevant in the sense that that's the way your players displayed on the TV graphic before kickoff. Um, another thing I think is relevant is that like the precedents which have been set in the championship. So the old logic used to be that to get out of that division, you'd need, you need to put together like a gang of pirates, really, like a kind of a, a Stoke City team, and you need, you need to bludgeon your way out of the league. And, and that's kind of, over the last sort of 20 years, examples have become more regular teams that are, are actually playing their way out of the division. So, but Steve Koppel's Reading in there, they, they played some good football. More recently, though, our obvious example is, is something like Bournemouth, Eddie Howe's Bournemouth. Um, Fulham, exactly. Fulham are a really well-coached team under Jokanovic. They, I mean, they had some very gifted players too, but they were, they played an attractive style of football. Um, and this season, we, 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 we've, we've talked about... Um, you know, Norwich and, and Sheffield United. I mean, there are, there are still examples. I mean, obviously, I don't think Neil Warnock's Cardiff are, were reinventing the game with the way that they overachieved last season. Um, but the kind of, this sort of, this aversion to, well, we can't pass the ball. You can't, you can't try and work the ball into attacking areas. It, it, it must always be direct. That stuff has kind of gone. At least enough examples exist whereby fans and clearly owners have faith in, in in trying to trying to get navigate the 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 road out in a little more more of a, a sort of a, a smarter way. I think also with tactics, the proliferation both of foreign coaches in the English game now, 
um, but also the availability of what other teams are doing. So, you know, obviously there's been a slow transition from what we were talking about in the Jonathan Wilson podcast, where if a team came from behind the Iron Curtain in the 1970s or 80s, you'd have literally no idea what they were going to turn up like. Whereas now they've got TIFO videos to watch. Whereas now they've got TIFO videos to watch. But, you know, <laughs> in that sense, and I think, I think yes, Football Manager is definitely a part of it. FIFA is people like, whether it's what we do or, or you know, people like Jonathan or Michael Cox writing about tactics. But also the the prevalence of you know leagues and matches that are accessible to ordinary fans sure but also to managers and people who are able now to kind of sit and look at things and take inspiration from elsewhere and to use tools like Y Scout other scouting tools are available but probably not as good um, to analyze and assess what's going on and and I think to kind of pick up what Seb was saying you know before there was there was a sense that in order to achieve promotion, a certain style was required, partly because of the physical demands. But, you know, if you had enough sort of, you know, six foot plus guys in their late 20s who were good at set pieces and knew how to lump it forwards and you could keep it tight and Tony Pulis was in the dugout, you had a decent chance of getting out because it was a grind. Do you think referees changing over time has changed that as well? That that may have I, I don't I don't really know, but I I think where it, to, sort of to pick up what you were saying about Moneyball in an odd way is that actually if you if you look at what everybody else is doing and you have sufficient confidence in yourself to take a, an approach which is really quite opposite to that, mm. and you have the the players and the coaching ability to realise that you are going to gain an advantage because teams that are set up to bludgeon their way through an extremely long season are not going to respond well to being picked apart like Norwich can do or like Sheffield United can do or like Leeds can do. So you, you're gaining an advantage simply by being different. The, the opposite analogy or the opposite end of the spectrum is how Hatafe have performed in La Liga this season because everyone in La Liga wants to try and play like Norwich and Hatafe want to play like a Tony Pulis coach Middlesbrough side and that's why they're fourth because they're really, really good at it. And teams struggle to know what to do because it's so different from what pretty much everyone else is doing. Mm. Okay. The same thing. I think it's fascinating. Uh, but let's, we, we, we don't have all, all the time, unfortunately, so we must move on. Um, but all the time. We don't have all of the time. No. We just have a, <laughs> yeah, small, some of it, a, little a bit. small part of the time. A little, little, little um, window here on a Monday. Seb, would you, uh, would you educate me, please, about the ownership situation with Sheffield United? Because... From the, the limited amount I understand from a video that we released on the TIFA Football YouTube channel recently, written by Neil Jensen, which was about Sheffield, the city as a, as a whole, including both clubs, um, the ownership situation with United is quite complicated. It is, and we've got to be a little bit careful with um, how precise we are here because it's I love it when you say case. that. Yeah, it makes me a little bit nervous. Um, right, it makes, so, it makes you sound grown up. And it does. It gets to say, you know, you know, be aware of things like court cases and not being sued. I'm just going to tread careful. Proper adults. I'm yeah. not entirely no, sure. No, I'm the responsible. I'm, you know, I'm getting married in a year. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a grown man. I, you know. Okay. So um, broadly, um, <laughs> Sheffield United is um, is owned by a holding company, um, and until 2013, that was solely owned by. McCabe family, um, Kevin McCabe, who's, who's uh, was the club's chairman since 
He's been uh, club chairman since the mid nineties, as he's been there nearly twenty years, I think. Um, in twenty thirteen, fifty um, percent of the holding in that company was sold to Prince Abdullah of Saudi Arabia, or Prince Abdullah bin Musaid bin Abdullah Al Saud. Sure, yeah, I, I yeah. promised Joe I'd do that. Sorry if I've Thank offended you. anyone there. Thank you. Um, it was sold to him for for one pound, um, and with the promise that he would provide significant and helpful uh, investment into Sheffield United. It's the unusual, future. the 50% thing. I understand because... Yeah, because you'd think 51, 49. But yeah, right. 50% is very unusual in these sort of situations, isn't it? Well, it's unusual. And in this case, um, it also came with certain provisions. Um, one being that um, if Prince Abdullah ever increased his holding up, beyond, up to and beyond 75%, um, he would then be obliged to um, to purchase uh, the sort of the the other properties which fall under the I think I think the um, the company's called a Red and White Holdings or something something like that, um, and there are things associated with it, so an academy, um, some normal property, and I think obviously um, Bramall Lane I think is uh, is part of that. Now there were movements made to do this. Um, turned out or is alleged um that prince abdullah created some kind of secondary entity to um circumnavigate the obligation to to purchase those um those assets um as a result of which um him and mccabe uh, have fallen out dramatically and we're recording this on the 6th of may and i think they're due in the high court to resolve this in the middle of the month. Now, the problem here is that Sheffield United actually have a, a, a bit of a checkered history with, with kind of ownership derailing um, sort of upwardly mobile teams. Um, happened when Ian Porterfield was manager. Um, happened when, when John Harris was manager, which would have been, um, I, I think, the early 70s. Um, they had a, a growing team that sort of very unwisely um, tried to uh, we'll spend a lot of money trying to redevelop, I think, the south stand at Bramall Lane. It's quite similar to the situation um, with Brian Clough and Nottingham Forest in the 80s when they kind of tried to, you know, increase the capacity of the ground instead of overspend and create a liability, derail progress. Um, and they've had generally a very difficult ownership situation. Even when Dave Bassett was manager, I think he went through um, some real chaos at ownership level he achieved despite that. So they've now got a situation where um, they're going to the Premier League. Um, they've got a fantastic manager, and not Sheffield United. Like when they came up under Warnock, there was a kind of there was none of the optimism that goes with playing the kind of football that they are now. Warnock is not quite the kind of the luddite that he's often assumed to be, and that was a more attractive team than the one he's managing at Cardiff. But even so, this is a kind of I feel like this is a sort of a more evolved version of Sheffield United, which is coming up now. Um, and yet you've got this kind of, whenever there's conflict ownership level, what you generally see as a result of it is stasis. Like you, you see organisational energy which could be being put into, you know, I don't know, um, improving the playing squad, developing commercial opportunities, harnessing the, like, uh, the, the bounty of Premier League broadcasting payments. Making a start on, on long-term projects. Exactly like that, academy exactly or that. You know, you're, you're trying to, if you don't stay in the Premier League, then at least you are taking something in a legacy, uh, stamp, from a legacy standpoint from it. Um, and so this needs to be resolved. Um, 
and which it will be sure which it will be you'd you'd imagine um it's become quite clear that mckay doesn't want um prince abdullah to uh own the club outright or own the you know take control of the club um he himself um he's i think he's in his early 70s now and very publicly he said that you know his time as chairman is done because um with 20 years of his life um and also I, I guess he's he's achieved what he set out to achieve. Like the club is back in the Premier League. Um, they've had a, a prior visit, of course, which didn't end well. Um, but that would be a a good end point. But obviously, in terms of succession, um, he is uh, yeah not content to see the club. I, I I don't know enough about Prince Abdullah to to, to pass judgment on this. What I do know is um, very rarely goes to games, which quite understandably fans get suspicious of. He is a fan of American football, which has uh, which sets off a few sort of distant alarms about all the things we know about American sport. I don't know if the, any of that is fair, but whatever reason, the kind of the bad faith has is, is sort of underwritten these last you know eighteen months or so. Uh, it's a problem, and it needs it cannot drag into the end, into the beginning of next season. And what what has the substantial investment been? I don't know because it's, it's not been in the playing stuff. Well, this is the thing. It's a kind of um, we've spent a good twenty minutes talking about how this has all been done on a budget and how, you know, for all intents and purposes, from a playing perspective, they're operating on a profit. Um, so I don't know. I had a look around last night. Um, I haven't been able to to find a figure that I'd be happy to quote. Um, as a sort of there's a few things on websites which, I mean, with all due respect, don't look particularly official. So it's a little bit nebulous. What his involvement is in terms of, you know, what he's enabled them, them to achieve, I don't know. I couldn't say. But as you say, I think the key point is avoiding the stasis, right? Yeah, because you, every time you see this in, in English football history, you, you look back at things like, you can even go back to Ken Bates and Matthew Harding. Like, it doesn't end well. You know, when you have, a, when you have two different owners that are, uh, you know, focused in two different directions... It's like two people rowing in opposite directions. You go nowhere. Um, and also the worry I would have is if this creates, if this creates a ripple which you know, flows into the playing squad, if this causes an issue um, for Chris Wilder, Chris Wilder is an extremely well thought of manager. I'm not saying there's any stress that he would leave, but at what point do you think, well, if I'm going to have my legacy at this club tarred by people that aren't operating on a football basis on our, you know, um, expending their time and energy in the high court, am I not better cashing in the reputation? Um, you know, he did excellent things at, at Oxford. He did amazing things at Northampton. Um, Alex, we were saying he'd never been sacked. He's never been sacked. I mean, he, he took over Northampton when they're on the verge of dropping out of the football league, and within two seasons, he had the promoted to League One. It's an amazing effort. League Two, a bit of a strange league in the sense that you get that mobility quite often, but it's still a hell of an achievement. Um, and what he's done at Sheffield United is amazing, and so. Why wouldn't you, given his achievement, but also the style which has underwritten that achievement, why would he not have a, um, you know, a, a, a realistic uh, opportunity to go, if not into the Premier League somewhere, the, 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 the top echelons of the championship? So you need harmony and it needs to happen quickly. And you cannot go into the Premier League um, with a kind of, with, if you're in Sheffield United's position, you have to approach it from a position of strength as much as you can. You need to have all of these parts aligned. And at the moment, the reverse is true. If, if there's ever a period of time in a club 
club's history where it needs stability more than any other time is bridging the divide from the championship to the Premier League because it's by far and away the hardest thing to do. Um, and you can see, even with a, a team like Fulham that came up, you know, the, 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 the strategy to support a particular manager with Jukanovic and back him with certain transfers that seem to have some sort of theory behind them, that fell apart. And as soon as you then get that disharmony coming in, everything goes to shit. Whereas if you're Wolves, which had a very clear strategy stuck to not only a set of playing principles, but a set of recruitment principles, that that's in no small part, not just the, the skill of Nuno Spiritus, Espirito Santo and some of the players, but you can tell there's a cohesiveness there. If you're someone, you know, if you're a really big club, maybe you can bridge that gap if you're going back without too much of a kind of, you know, behind the scenes strategy in mind. I would argue that that is increasingly less the case as the competitive advantage opens up between teams. So even if you're an Aston Villa, you know, you want to know exactly what you're going to do if you go up and how you're going to progress and 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 Sheffield United don't certainly don't seem to have quite as much behind the scenes going on as Norwich do in a positive way, which is why, by the way, I'm very confident that Norwich will stay up. But I think if this, the, you know, the, this sort of off-field tension continues, and, and Wilder can get job offers from somewhere else, I'm sure, because you know what he's done consistently through his career has been really impressive. Wait, this has a this has a this can be related to real to the real world. Right, so in Chris Wilder's situation, who is his boss? I mean, you know, it, it's still really Kevin McCabe, yeah. But at the same time, if you're working on the basis that you don't quite know who your your owner is going to be and who you're supposed to be loyal to long term, and whose guidelines and strategies you're supposed to, you know, um, to be supporting, or you know, who who is supporting, it's a, it's a it's a nightmare, and that that applies well beyond football clubs. Um, so this needs to be, you know, every every marginal gain that Sheffield United um, can activate between now and the beginning of next season, they have to take advantage of. And this is a this is a suppressing force. This at the moment. That's a great point, though. I mean, I think we've probably all in personal lives all been in those situations, yeah. or even maybe in professional lives. But even just the little chats that that you would imagine Chris Wilder at some point throughout the season will have had with both of the owners separately, and the the idea of what they are aspiring to and what they would like and. It's a, it's, a, it's a tough position to be in and it, it's awkward as well, right? It's a mess. I remember one of the first jobs I ever did, I was young and naive and I was in my very early 20s, to, to build offices. And um, it was a failing company because it was, it was around the time of the last big recession. And um, we had a boss who would come into the office once or twice a week, maybe. Um, and then I had a middle manager who, who had become, I would say, slightly overpromoted. And conversations with those two different people were invariably very different. And it was kind of, who are you loyal to in that situation? Because, you know, one has the, I know, I know it's not quite the equivalent of, of a, a football club ownership, but as an employee, it becomes very, very difficult to do your best work. Um, and also as an employee, there comes a point, no matter what job you're doing, you think, fuck this, I'll go and work somewhere where it makes more sense. Um, is this your way of telling us that you're leaving <laughs> that's the plot twist yeah sadly I'm no longer in my early 20s unfortunately but um, <laughs> that's that's the bombshell that we're going to end the podcast on and you just you could put like a, a, a you know the sound of me slamming a door and some swearing in the background 
but it's hard. Like, and, and you, you managers are commodities and finding a manager who can do, you know, finding a manager that works in this way is yes, based on astute decision-making, but it's also really good luck yeah. because you can have all kinds of theories about why, why X is going to work at club Y, but invariably it doesn't work out. And this has worked out beyond anyone's wildest dreams. And so, you need to protect that situation. You need to protect your own good fortune. And this is, this, is, this is a nonsense. So this needs to stop. Well, let's talk about whether it can work out even more. Mm. Um, I think it makes sense for us to, to, to discuss. Um, and we, maybe we can you know, have a think about, as an aside, Norwich as well as the other team that are definitely promoted. And talk about what the right thing to do is for clubs who are being promoted from the Championship up to the Premier League. We see various different approaches to it. I suppose the two um, easy categories to place these teams into are teams who spend a lot of money and teams who don't spend a lot of money. And every season without fail, uh, one of the pundits in the Soccer Saturday room will tell everyone in the world that one of them's done it wrong because they've done this. And then the next year, they'll say the same about the team who did the opposite. And uh, it's a minefield that, of course, there is no one route here. And it's incredibly specific to the team. If we're thinking about Sheffield United specifically, they will have seen last season what Fulham did, but then they will have seen what Huddersfield did. You know, it's, how do you play it? I think if I'm a Sheffield United fan, and I think most supporters would agree, I think my priority is the integrity and future of the club always. Like Premier League is nice, terrific, but I don't want to see my club taking ridiculous risks like Fulham. Uh, It's not... Fulham, Fulham are just, we're flogging them a little bit, but they're just, there are plenty of other examples. QPR are just a basket case of a club who, who made pretty much every mistake they can make when they, you know, when they came up. I think the answer is um, within reason. There are areas of that team which need strengthening. And there are areas of the team that would be strengthened if they weren't promoted as well, right? Which is the other so. thing to remember. I, I, it's not I, like I, you come up with, the to- with exactly the same squad. And if you stay down, you've got a transfer ban on it. Yeah, no, absolutely not. Um, but I, I think that has to be done with the expectation that it's got to be fine to be relegated. It's got to be okay if that happens because, you know, there are, there are, there are teams, there are teams between, who finished 10, between 10th and 15th this season who will spend 50 million quid over the summer. You have to, you have to treat it, I think, as a, as a kind of, almost cheerfully. So if you finish 17th, fantastic. And then you can look at the scales of your ambition after that, again, with some responsibility. But in the initial instance, this is not kind of, it's not time to gamble the house. You know, there are, you can put yourself very quickly into an extremely perilous situation, which doesn't just have a legacy which lasts two or three years, but potentially decades. Um, and, and also, you know, uh, there's, a, there's an argument to say you, you, you dance with the ones that brought you here. Um, I think as a manager, I, I think there's a real difficulty in the sort of the, the squad harmony sense of riding a group of players across a 46 game season, which is brutal on, a, on, on, especially on this squad, because they are not the younger squad out there. There are players there dependent on who are um, in their late 20s, in their early 30s, or in Billy Sharp's case, 33. These players are owed the opportunity to play in the Premier League. If you don't do that, forget, you know, grievances being carried by individual people if you don't do that you create cliques and it's really easy to see that how that happens all of a sudden you leave out one or two key components from the promotion season you bring in a as a spec what happened at fulham 
you bring in a couple of guys that are really there because they want to show what they're about in the Premier League and then earn a move somewhere else. Jean-Michel Serri is a really good example. Jean-Michel Serri is not, was not thinking about playing five years at Fulham. There's no criticism of him. It's just the reality of the game. He was there because a strong season and a good Fulham performance would have, would have opened, his, opened the doors to him playing for Everton or Spurs or Arsenal or a team like that. You can't do that. You can't, it's, it's equivalent of making a quantum leap in the game. You have to know your place and you have to celebrate promotion, enjoy it, but then go through the next season, and it might well be a slow, but go through the next season where, you know, the earth doesn't shatter should you finish 20th. You just pick up where you went on and you're considerably richer. And when you put it in those terms, it's no bad thing, is it? I don't think so. Like fans treat, fans treat relegation um, as the end of the world. And, and I understand that. And I also support a team that I've never seen relegated. So it's really, really easy for me to sit here and say that. But then when you meet fans of, of the yo- so-called yo-yo clubs, yeah. they can't, I mean, for example, a, a friend of mine, Martin, who's a Norwich fan, he embraces relegation because he loves going to away games in the championship. Well, away games that they might win in the championship too. But I, I, the model I, I, I point to is probably Burnley. So Burnley come up the first time and they get relegated. But they get relegated in a way in which they were able to rebound within a sort of a five-year period. Um, and now they're, okay, they, they haven't had the greatest season, but they are they're kind of becoming part of the Premier League furniture. And they are a capable side at this level. They're no longer overmatched. Um, and the smartest thing they did was create the conditions under which relegation was not a terminal situation. That was very, very smart. And that's, that should be the approach. Wolves are a different entity. Like we know this and, you know, they have the financial backing to be treated as an outlier. Um, Fulham might have been, but they bollocks it up so hard that, you know, um, they're now on the hook for all kinds of, <laughs> all kinds of difficulties. Goodness knows the state of some of those contracts and what is or what is not, you know, um, what the conditions of relegation now are. But Sheffield United, just come and just, you know, be smart with where you strengthen don't create long-term obligations to transient players. This is all quite common sense. Um, I think that's, that's the thing. You know, I listen to what you're saying and, and I don't disagree with any of it. And there are plenty of examples of teams like Portsmouth and QPR who did do exactly that and, and that the, the battle for survival became in perception so important that, that, chucking large amounts of money at players who had really no interest in the club one way or the other except as to, you know, cash a paycheck. And I think this was particularly the case at QPR. The, the contracts that they had were then so punitive when those clubs were ultimately relegated that it's basically ripped the arse out of them. And so on the one hand, you've got models of how not to do it. On the other hand, you have got models like Burnley of how to do it. Uh, I would argue Bournemouth are are there as well you know and for me one of the key points there is that it's not just in terms of being reasonably astute in terms of how you play the transfer market obviously that is a big part of it it's kind of a given isn't it sure it, it is a given but I think you know if you look at both of those teams what they did was they they retained a sense of footballing identity now that has been tweaked and, you know, Burnley are not just long ball specialists with really good back four and Bournemouth, you know, that there have been changes over the course of that time and the integration of more exciting players and so on. Um, but by and large, they know what they're about and 
therefore that assists in the transfer market. Whereas you look at a team maybe like Fulham, who rather than seeking to retain the kind of Vukanovic identity and and you know, working with Mitrovic, working with Sessegnon, that playing to your strengths, suddenly you bring in some players who on paper are actually good players. You know, there's no doubt about that. But where do they fit in and why? So if you're a Sheffield United or a Norwich, I would personally be looking to strengthen a couple of areas, sure. Can I, I ask you specifically uh, with Sheffield United, uh, we don't really do player names, but areas in which either of you might it, think that it a, could be strengthened. Yeah, of course. It's at both ends of the pitch. Uh, I think that what Seb suggested earlier with uh, Henderson would be absolutely the smart move, and I would hope that Manchester United would be sufficiently smart to realise that Henderson is more used to them as a prospect playing first-team football than on the bench behind De Gea, even if you might get still probably somewhere between 5 to 10 million for Romero. Um, and up front, and, and again, we had this conversation about Norwich before, I think, too. You know, there is a degree to which um, you, if you're Sheffield United, you can't rely, and I, I agree with what Seb says about, you know, dance with the girl that brought you, at the same time, if that girl is 33, you know, you kind of... It's the awkward you, reality of it. Right. Yeah. You know, is, is, is a front line of David McGoldrick and Billy Sharp going to be able to get you... Logically, I'd say no. 20, 30 goals in the Premier League. This is the thing. This is, the, this is where smart management comes into it, Alex. It's like, you, you have, to, you have to, to develop the provision for that to fail. Because, you know, uh, neither have a, a record at Premier League level. Um, you have to you have to find a balance between reinforcing that without cr- developing that sort of that clique and nightmare not, not bringing in these star players. Yeah, to yeah, don't them. don't don't give Mario Balotelli two hundred grand a week. You know, like I mean, it's it's, it's the other <laughs> thing with with Sheffield United. Just looking at their their first team squad is that the other two kind of main strikers within Gary that Medine setup is there, isn't are he? Gary Medine, who is on loan, yeah. and Scott Hogan, who is on loan, and otherwise. Connor Washington, who is 26, and I've not heard of them. So, well, he uh, Connor Washington's not a bad player. He's Northern Ireland international, I think. Um, he's not a bad player, but he's he's a bit too. Uh, I'd say I, I want to be careful how I characterise him. Um, he's quite a traditional centre forward. Um, I don't think, in all honesty, he's quite good enough to play at the Premier League level. He's a very, you know, decent. Um, the championship. What's the name of that? You know who reminds me of? Connor Salmon from oh, Wigan. Yeah. Okay. yeah, that kind of player. Like yeah. he's there, there are some similarities there, not just in the, in, the, in the first name. There was another Connor as well, wasn't there? Probably. There this was is turning a, into a different kind of podcast. A few years ago. I think that the, the issue is that it's almost like saying, well, where does a club need to strengthen? Well, they need to stop goals happening and they need to score goals. Like it's fairly clear. I, I, if you look at the rest of that squad though, um, there's no glaring weaknesses and and in terms of age profile and so on they're they're fairly well set so i i do think it's it's the sort of instance where if i were them and we were talking about somebody else and i can't remember who it was but try and find a a, a prospect striker you know one of these hungry young under 21 under 22 sort of age range from a from a proper Premier League side, an established Premier League side, on loan, get them there as somebody who you're willing to take a punt on. And, you know, if, if I were that sort of striker, 
and not getting regular games, I would look at the opportunity to play under Chris Wilder, but also the opportunity to learn from people like Billy Sharp, who we've talked about before. You know, he's a he's a striker who has consistently performed over a long career based on movement and intelligence rather than any kind of particular athletic set of gifts. So that that could potentially be a really good opportunity for somebody who is not breaking into the first team squad. And I think, actually, I do think that Sheffield United have Ben Woodburn on loan. You know, that that's the sort of person where you'd look at, you know, maybe he's only going to get you five, five to ten goals a season if you're really lucky. But at the same time, that's five more than you get otherwise. And it's a fresh pair of legs and it's someone who wants to be there, wants to learn, wants to get the opportunity. And also structurally, if they're a young player, even if even if it's clear that they will uh, mature to be a better player than Billy Sharp, Billy Sharp's nose doesn't get out of joint because he's he's. They're Correct. also learning from him, and, and so on, that makes sense, right? I, I think from that perspective, absolutely. I mean, Sharp's not Sharp's very unlikely to go anywhere because he's the club captain. But I also don't. I didn't mean that his nose would be put out of joint. I just no, meant no, no, hypothetically no, no, in that situation. Your point is absolutely correct. I think the other thing that's key is that you know if if you make a couple of astute loan signings then you aren't burdening yourself financially in a way that spending £25 million on, you know, a, it's not easy to get strikers that are that good to be able to make the difference at an affordable rate that makes business sense for a club that's newly promoted. That's why if you're going to spend big as a newly promoted club, you always spend big at the back, where, you know, that's, that's the one area that Sheffield United have spent a reasonable amount of money by their standards in the last couple of seasons. So they do understand that. But, you know, it's you're not going to get the striker that guarantees you survival for £25 million. Pounds because, it that you know, A, if someone's that good, somebody better than you is going to buy them. And I think B, the, the last time that happened was Robin Van Persie, £25 million pounds to Man United, which now seems absurd, doesn't it? The amount of money, I mean. Yeah, but, you know, it, it's also the the risk, you know, to Manchester United... Yes, it's big money, but or was big money at the time, but it's still, it's not the sort of risk that'll sink or swim them. Whereas, you know, Fulham going back down, yes, they'll have parachute payments, but their outlay in the summer was significant. And that is the sort of thing that places a financial burden on a club. And Sheffield United, with one eye on what's going on in terms of the ownership, the other eye on the fact that are they going to be all that confident of staying up? I don't know. They're not going to, I would be hugely surprised if they overcommitted in a stupid way. And that may actually be to their advantage. Like they could do worse than sort of just renew some of the loan deals they've got. The goalkeeper, obviously, but someone like um, uh, Kieran Dowell, who's been on loan for Everton. I mean, I, I don't think he's, he's played in, I think they started more than sort of 10 games. But Dowell's a really, really good player in the making. I think Chris Wilder's on record as saying that he sees his future as, as a kind of a, as a number 10. But he's someone that's, you're not like, you're boosting your options, but without creating friction as a consequence, you know, you're getting young, pliable players who, who seem to, to react positive, positively to Wilder and to that group of players, the group of existing players. Well, that's why they call him smooth Chris Wilder, isn't it? Is it? I know. Joe's yeah, made that up. I think so. I'm but, pretty but, sure that's why. You know, we, we, we talked earlier in the podcast in a sort of slightly joking manner about Moneyball, but. If Moneyball is anything, it's exploiting inefficiencies in the market to achieve a greater degree of success than your financial clout would ordinarily allow you. And the loan market for 
younger English players is exactly that. If, if you are prepared, you know, they're not necessarily going to come in and be first team regulars from the off. So you take that under consideration. But this is a place where you can get players who have been through really, really high-tech academies, have worked with really smart coaches, are probably more tactically astute and aware than players five to ten years their senior now, are hungry to do stuff and to play regularly, some of them, not all of them, I'm sure. But this is the sort of area where if you're clever as a as a, a club that's coming up into the Premier League or a club that's pootling around the lower fringes. And I think there's probably a pride element in there. You know, if you're Southampton, for example, my team, it's probably a little bit embarrassing to take most players that would be available on loan from other Premier League sites because you think, well, why can't we just sign our own? But if you look at, say, for example, you know, the the, the loaning of players like Nathan Chalabar or Ruben Loftus-Cheek to teams, you know, they've done really well for those teams. Like, there is no shame in doing that. That humility that, that a side that's newly promoted might have to say, you know, no, sod it, we'll, we'll take a 24-year-old midfielder from Chelsea or from Man U because they're good and we don't care that it seems like we're getting cast-offs. Like, that could be a strength to them. I'm, al- I'm also thinking that's why, uh, you know, there's probably a, a long list of uh, older British uh, Irish managers who have been around the sort of top two levels of, of um, the Premier League and the Championship for a while, keep getting work even though they seem outdated because they have very good contacts. They've been at all the other clubs and they can get those loans. They signings. can ring someone up and say, I'm give sure us a player, Harry. And, you know, yeah. and uh, yeah, I'll send you a couple of forwards. Okay. Yeah. That, and that, I, that's how it works. Yep. I, I think it is how it works. Yeah, deals done in motorway service stations. It's as old as the game itself, that. Yeah. I mean, it's probably less relevant now because of the people that now exist between manager and player, yeah. but it's still relevant, especially if you're, you're not operating on the kind of budgets at the top of the Premier League, you've got to have the ability to convince people to do things that they might not otherwise do. Call in some favours. But, but then if you're Sheffield United or Norwich, what I would be looking at there is, is actually your, your coaching proposition is really strong. So you can, you can look at, you know, say you go to Liverpool and you say to a player like Ben Woodburn, for example, you know, okay, you're not going to be playing regular at Liverpool but you've learned a lot while you're there. Now come and learn with us, where Chris is doing all of these really yeah. fascinating things tactically. Smooth Chris Wilder. Smooth Chris Wilder. That will facilitate your transition, smooth it, if you will, back into the Liverpool first team squad in a season or two, because you've obviously got the talent, and it's not, you know, going on loan shouldn't be, and this is, you know, look at the Bundesliga for this, where you've got people you know, like Reese Nelson and Reese Oxford over in the Bundesliga, that is not simply exposure to first-team football. The benefit there, and that's why it's such a canny move, is it's the exposure to other players, other ways of playing, and other, other tactical systems, other coaching methods. Those players are going to come back so well-rounded from that experience, not just culturally, but having been you know, exposed to all of these different ways of doing things, that, that you, know, you would be foolish not to take that opportunity if you're a young player. And you you might well get that same sort of benefit if you go to an unusually coached side like Sheffield United. But I, I think it's also one of the one of the hidden benefits of playing uh, with the ball on the floor, because if you imagine if you're a if you're a, a manager of a, a Liverpool, Spurs, Arsenal, and you've got a young player, who would you send that player to, given what your native style is, Cardiff or Sheffield United? No, because if you're 
if you're exposing a young player to, okay, you're going to play 10 games, you're just going to play 10 games maybe as a midfielder where you just watch the ball arrow over you for 90 minutes. If you go and play in a style which isn't identical, but which there are some similarities between what you want that player, how you want that player to exist over the long term, it's a huge advantage. I also want my players thinking. If, I, if I'm a manager who, or, or actually almost more to the point, if I'm a director of football and any Premier League or Championship club that doesn't now have a director of football should punch itself in the head. Are we, in, are we entering your wet it. dream now? No. If I was a director if of I, football, if I were a this is how Alex gets himself to sleep at night. He's available yeah. if anyone's Man United, if anyone's um, interested. But I, I would be looking at, particularly in the Premier League, I would be looking at the turnover of managers and I would say, okay, the, the likelihood of necessarily getting a manager that will completely fit the pre-existing playing squad or the way that we want to play is, is minimal. So we may have to take people who are good but not exactly the right fit. I therefore want my players, particularly my younger players, to be flexible and adaptable. So I, I you know, if I play like Unai Emery, I don't just want potentially my players to go to managers who also coach their teams like Unai Emery. I want them to go elsewhere, not necessarily to Cardiff, obviously, but to On a places, thinking player's pilgrimage. Yeah, right, think, to places where, where coaches are going to push them and stretch them and get them doing things. Teach them. That they wouldn't necessarily... Yeah, exactly. Because then they're going to come back to me and as a director of football, I'll be looking at that and go, okay, great. Well, you're now, you know, you're, you're more well-rounded, you're tactically more astute, you've been exposed to different forms of football. That also means that my squad now has more potential. If I have to sack this guy and get someone different in, there's a flexibility that exists there. So I can be not more cavalier, but I can be less concerned about, about just getting an identikit manager in because my squad's only set up to play one way. And then the rest, the, the industry will recognise you and you will win awards and they will all tell you you were right. And this is a really good right. point because like young player, a young player between so the ages of 18, 23, that is, it's not necessarily about talent development. It's about forming habits and, and, uh, and creating that, a uh, 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 perception of how the game should be played. Now, if you send a player to a manager who goes heavy on video analysis, for instance, or who, you know, after every match, they're in the, in the training ground, they're going over things hour after hour after hour, that becomes the player's expectation over time. You're breeding a... And they'll take that with them. Yeah, a smarter player, but one who can solve problems, one who's encouraged to look at his own performance and identify flaws for himself, rather than just be, as the old model was, you fucked up, son, do it this way. Because that, that's no good. That doesn't... That it's doesn't the muscle in- memory of the Rondo. Exactly this. Exactly this. It's, it, does, it does a player no good just to be told what he's done wrong, what he's done right. He has to work out for himself. That's, that's, the, that's the core of um, you know, where Dan Ashworth's um, uh, England DNA document, problem solving. It's a bit of a buzzword. It's a bit annoying. You want to slap anyone who uses it. I understand that. But it's, it's based on something real. You want smarter footballers. But that's exactly what football is a series of problems to yep. solve. And the first problem is that your team lines up like X, therefore my team should line up like Y. And then throughout the course of the match, individual situations present themselves as a problem. You know, how to get past this fullback, how to get the ball into the box, how to defend against a particular type of free kick. So if you've got players who are embedded in a way of thinking, it's like you know, if you do an English degree, the vast majority of people who do an English degree at university do not then go on and teach English. 
but it conditions you to think about your relationship to a body of material in a particular way. And then that helps you go off and do law or carpentry or whatever it is you want to do, because you're, you, you've been trained to think rather than trained to read poems, basically. Pod- podcasts. Sure. Right. For example. Um, and, and if you, if you want think or you, any, any coach, any director of football should want thinking footballers. They should want people who are hungry to learn more, who want good examples of good practice, who are interested in not just what they should do to beat this right back, but how somebody arrived at that as being the answer and how their strength and conditioning plays into that and whether they're sleeping enough and are they eating properly and all of those different things. You know, there's, there's no reason why young footballers shouldn't be pushed into seeing what they do as a series of questions to be answered. And and you're going to be better equipped to do that if your examples are thoughtful, interested, intelligent coaches. Okay. Well, I think we should probably wrap up now. Uh, that's an hour and, and 10 minutes. Um, thank you very much for listening. We will be back next week, I think. I don't think we've discussed who we'll be talking about. Although the season... The championship season's over already. The Premier League season finishes next next week. Sunday. Next Sunday. Next Sunday. Um, yeah, we'll have a think. He we'll says think he it. says we're going to talk about it, but Alex, I know he's just going to tell us which one we're doing. <laughs> well, just being framed in a I've run out of ideas. Okay, so. I went on holiday, and that when I uh, was away, the only thing about football I saw was a very strange video of Neil Warnock uh, coming towards a, a camera, to which everybody everybody made the same joke. So tedious. There should be there should be like a, a mechanism built into Twitter or any social media platform where when something like that has existed for a certain period of time, it then goes into that kind of category with copyright infringement where you're just not allowed to post it anymore. What what, what was the joke? It's like an Oasis thing. It was it uh, was vaguely funny for five minutes and then everybody repeated it with a different or same Oasis lyric and it was just and then somebody made a video and then another person made a video and it you're was just, all hilarious. You're boring, basically. Click, click, click. Crikey, ha, right? ha, Jesus. Ha, ha, this is ha, a, what do they call it? A nest of snakes in here. We're a working, of snakes in we're this working on a bank holiday Monday. This is what you get as a result of that. This is the mood. That I, you're I, like, I like funny videos. I like funny videos. Yeah, but yeah, I like but funny it's, videos. It's funny the are, first time. Yeah. And then when you see everybody right, I was, We've got to go. We've got to go because this is just extending the edit. Uh, but uh, thank you for listening. We will be back next week with something we don't know what yet. And I uh, hope you enjoyed uh, the end of the, the championship season. Sheffield United fans look forward it's to... It's not uh, the end of the season. The end of the championship season. No, there's still the playoffs. Yeah, but for, it's not for Sheffield, is it? I'm not talking the, to them, Not mate. the time for pedantry. I'm talking to Sheffield Everybody. United fans, specifically, whose season is now over, finished successfully... Seeing the Premier League. See what people listening and now hearing are the the cracks in the Tifo family. (laughs) Goodbye. (laughs) Goodbye, that's it. Goodbye. Thanks. Bye. At American University, we don't just hope for change. We create it. We don't just dream of a better world. We make it a reality. With a graduate degree from AU, you'll access expert faculty and connections throughout D.C. to develop skills and experience to turn your passion into purpose. And that purpose can make all the difference in your career. Discover the difference a degree makes at American.edu slash gradschool.